Well, as we were singing this morning and as I considered preaching this morning, I kind of got to thinking a little bit about being thankful to God for sound systems and for sound technicians and the, and the people that run our sound system. And we sometimes in churches seem to, seem to kind of take them for granted. They sort of have this thankless job. They're kind of like referees in, in, in sports, right? If you notice them, they're doing something wrong. If you don't notice them, which is most of the time, they're doing a great job. And uh, they only seem to get our attention when something goes wrong. But when everything is okay, which is 99.9% of the time, we don't even pay any attention. But it's actually amazing what all goes into making a sound system work. And, uh, you know, I can't even get over how this little thing that's right by my cheek here can project so much sound. It's not even wired to anything. And, and so you kind of think about that and, and all this sort of technology that we have and, and this wireless technology that we have today, it's really beyond my ability to understand. It's, as uh, President Obama said one time, it's beyond my pay grade uh, to try to understand how those, all that stuff works. But all of it allows you to hear the sermon better or to hear the music better, or at least the sound system is able to, to balance the voice and the instruments. It allows you to hear me better this morning. I can just sort of talk in a, in a normal voice. And if I get too loud, then Ben back there can just turn it down. Or if he doesn't like what I'm saying, he's got this little button that says mute on it. He can just kind of hit that and just like that. Well, he can almost do that. I can still kind of yell and make you hear me. But... I don't have to do that, and that's great. That's all because of these sound systems that we have these days. Anyways, all these things are something that's relatively new in history. The very first pastor I remember hearing was a, a man by the name of Pastor Gartman. And the only thing I remember about Pastor Gartman is that he always seemed to be yelling. I remember wondering to my parents, why is this man so angry? What's up with him? We come to church and we have to listen to an angry man. Well, I'm sure... Part of that was that he was convicted in his preaching and he had unction from the Holy Spirit. But I also imagine that when he started preaching, they probably didn't have microphones. And so he was dependent on his voice in order to project. I'm amazed when I think about pastors like Charles Spurgeon preaching to sometimes over 10,000 people without any sound equipment. Or Charles Whitfield, the great evangelist who preached in the 1700s to thousands of people at a time outdoors. Or even Jesus Christ himself, preaching to huge crowds there by the Sea of Galilee. Well, the thing that fascinates me, whether it's uh, all our electronic gadgetry, or, or whether it was in the time of Spurgeon, where churches were, were constructed for good acoustic sound, or whether it was Jesus who made use of the, the mountains and, and the valleys and the natural landscape, whether it's any of those things, God has always made a way for his preaching his teaching, to be heard and to be received. He even uses sign language for the hearing impaired. But all of this because the hearing of the word is really important to God. It's, it's important for the salvation of the lost. Romans 10 says, How will they believe in whom, whom, they, whom they have not heard? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? So it goes on to say that faith comes from hearing. 
and hearing by the word of Christ. That's salvation. And it's important also for the obedience of those who profess to be godly. I love how Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. This all brings up, when you think about it, that God has made his hearing available. It brings up a bit of a dilemma. The issue does not seem to be that God's word is not heard. Now, I admit, in some places in the world, that is an issue, which is why we're passionate about the mission of getting the gospel to the unreached people groups who have not heard the gospel yet. But other than that, the issue for us is an auditory one. The issue is not a matter of hearing. God has always spoken, whether through his miracles or through judges or through donkeys even or through kings or through apostles or through the written word or through preachers or through prophets. The issue is not that we can't hear. The issue is always whether people will listen. And we have the same thing in Micah. That's how I put it in the title. Micah is a matter of auditory attention. God raises up this prophet Micah to get, try and get people's attention. He wants them to listen, lest they be susceptible to the judgment of a holy God. And so the question for us today, for you today, for me today, is are you willing to listen to the voice of God? The book of Micah is structured around these commands from God to listen. Micah can basically be divided into three sections, each of which begins with the word hear. Here. You see them in chapter 1, verse 2. Look there with me. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Listen, O earth, and all that it contains. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Or chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, Hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? That's the second start of the second sec- section. And then over to chapter 6, verse 1, the portion that Pastor Wayne read for us. Hear now what the Lord is saying. And so Micah, 1 and 2 are one section. Chapters 3, 4, five, and, three, four and 5 are another section. And chapter 6 and 7 are the third section. But even throughout these divisions, you'll find these sort of continual challenges. When people don't listen, things will go bad. When people do listen things will go good. And so when Micah shows up, probably between um, 750 to 700 years before Christ, the situation in which he preaches in, sin is rampant. And so God sends them to Israel. Remember how they were divided? He sends them both to to the northern kingdom and to the southern kingdom to try to get their attention, to warn them about the consequences of their ways and to plead with them to listen. Hear, O peoples, all of you, hear now what the Lord is saying. It's a plea to give their ear to God. Whenever someone asks you to listen, you have two choices. Now remember, the issue is not that you can't hear. You hear perfectly well. The choice you have is to listen or to not listen. Or, to get to the real issue, the choice is to hear the warnings of God or to ignore the warnings of God. The consequences of those choices will kind of form our outline today in this overview of Micah. And so I framed 
the results of those two choices, you see it in your sermon outline there. To not listen incites the peril of divine judgment. To listen invites the protection of divine, and I changed it, in your notes I put divine grace, but it parallels itself a little bit more if you put to listen invites the protection of divine pardon. So if you have a pen there, pardon kind of means the same as grace, but it kind of parallels with judgment versus pardon a little bit better. But before we delve into that, we need to find out a bit of the context that brought God, that brought out this reaction from God. We know it had to have been serious because whatever is going on, Micah sees God actually getting out of heaven to deal with it. It's kind of like a father hearing something going on with his children in the basement. After a while, he'll say something like this. Don't make me come down there. Right? What he's saying is that if that he has to come downstairs, the situation is pretty serious and there's going to be consequences. Look at Micah 1, verses 2 and 3. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Listen, O earth, and all that it contains. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. God there is pictured as coming down from his throne to tread on these high places. There's obviously something wrong down there. And he's not tiptoeing. This is not treading lightly. He's putting a full weight of his holiness and of his righteousness, and that full weight bears down on his creation. Why? Well, look at verse 5. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of Israel. So what's going on here? How are they being rebellious? Well, for one thing, they are committing treason. They are putting other things above God in their affections, in their, in their loyalties, in their worship. Down in verse 7 of chapter 1, it talks about idols. In chapter 5, verse 13, we read of carved images and sacred pillars. When it comes down to it, they're basically telling God to get lost. Yeah, I know you brought us into this land, God, but we've moved on to more intellectual stuff, to deeper things. They're basically breaking the first and the second commandments. That you shall have no gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself any idols. Romans 1 puts it this way. He says, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped the served creature rather than the creator. These people had fallen into unbelievable sin and degradation. They were sinful through and through. Not only had they broken the first and second commandments, they were guilty of breaking the tenth and likely everyone in between. The tenth commandment is, do not covet. Well, look at chapter 2, verse 2. It says, they covet fields and then seize them and houses and then take them away. They rob a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. They covet and this covet Coveting leads them immediately to steal from the poor. Commandment number eight. Broken that one too. The leaders and the rich commit injustice on top of injustice. 
If you go to chapter 6, verse 12, it says there, The rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies. Commandment number 9. They only care about themselves. Full of pride. And that leads them to break all the commandments. In all three of these sections, we have a record of unbelievable and pervasive depravity. Chapter 7 sums up the totality and, and the thoroughness of, of the sin that smothered that culture. Verse 2 there says, The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among them. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts each other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. Verse 4, the best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn, like a thorn hedge. And then it goes on to say that no one can be trusted, not neighbors, not friends, not even family. Sounds a lot like what Paul describes in Romans 3. There's none good, not one. They all have sinned. And he ends up saying all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The way this is described It seems like he's describing hell on earth. But if you were to be transported into that culture, I'm sure you wouldn't see that evil from the outside. In fact, I'm not sure that the culture would look much different than ours. This context in Micah is God's evaluation of where things had gone, according to his standard. But listen, friends, it's God's evaluation that ultimately matters. God can see beneath the surface. While we're pretty good at hiding our motivations, at hiding our affections, God can see our hearts. God knows our motivations. What would he say about the world in which we live if he came down and had to speak to us? What would he say about our priorities? What would he say about our preferences? About the things that consume our lives? about what we are willing to do and and who we are willing to step over to, to satisfy our own desires. But that's God's evaluation. That's the situation in which God comes down from his throne in the day of Micah. But notice that he does come down. He still cares. He reaches out to them with a warning and says, Hear what the Lord is saying. Listen. And the warning is that to not listen is to incite the peril of divine judgment. In all three of these sections, after God describes the devastating sins of the people, he also spells out in very clear terms his devastating wrath against these sins. We already saw that in chapter 1 where he's pictured as leaving that temple to, to do battle against God's people. Well, the judgment of God is described in different ways in Micah. Sometimes it sounds like he's taking them to court. It's like he's coming as the prosecution to vindicate his glory. We already read verse one, chapter 1, verse 2, let the, Lord, let the Lord be a witness against you. Or in chapter 6, verse 1, God says, Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice, because the Lord has a case against his people. And when it comes to the courtroom of God's justice, all are guilty. Everyone is a lawbreaker. Everyone deserves God's wrath when put up against the standard of God's law. By the works of the law, Romans 3 says, no one will be justified in his sight. If it goes by the law, no one will be justified. 
The judgment of God is also described as, not only in this sort of court, courtroom language, but it's also described as silence. Look at chapter 3. This chapter takes aim at what are supposed to be the leaders in Israel, the judges, the prophets, and the priests. The first three verses of chapter 3 are just a really graphic description of the injustices that these leaders are committing. They are, just to summarize it, they're, they're oppressing the weak and the helpless. And like we learned from Amos a few weeks back, God always takes the side of the weak and the helpless. He takes a special interest in them because they reflect his interest in the spiritually weak and in the spiritually helpless. So when they're oppressed, God is not impressed. So look at what happens. Chapter 3, verse 4. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Instead, he will hide his face from them at that time because they have practiced evil deeds. Listen, there's not many times in the Bible where it says that God won't listen to someone who prays to him. But this is one of them. If they sin, if they don't listen, God will not listen to them. In fact, he will hide his face from them. You can really see the irony of that in the next section, in, in verses 5 to 7 of chapter 3, where he talks to false prophets. These were the people who were supposedly God's spokespeople, God's spokesmen. It was through the prophets that God's voice was supposed to be heard. But these were false prophets. Their predictions were actually influenced by whether someone would feed them. That's how they spoke. I get fed, I'll say something good. Don't feed me. I won't say anything good. Verse 5. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. So look at what God does in verse 7. The seers will be ashamed, and the diviners will be embarrassed. Indeed, they will all cover their mouths because there's no answer from God. They won't have anything to say. God's not going to speak to them. The very people that were supposed to say what God told them to say would have nothing to say. God was silent. Folks, this is severe judgment. When God goes silent, people are in trouble. Without the voice of God, it's chaos. Chaos reigns. But when people close their ear to God, this is the result. The most basic foundational consequence of sin is separation, alienation from God. And if he doesn't speak anymore, that's what we've got. And that's what we have here. So I fear for preachers who do not preach the word of God. I think we're seeing this already in our time. There's supposed preachers that speak whatever gets them approval. They're prophets for hire, motivated by what will make them and the people to whom they preach feel good. And so they preach a gospel of self-esteem, or a gospel of social action, or a gospel of prosperity, all the things that might win them approval, that might feed their stomachs, all the things that might tickle people's ears, as Paul put it in 2 Timothy 2. Micah 3.11 says even more about them. It says, Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price. And her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not 
come upon us. Does this not sound familiar? Instruct for a price, yet lean on the Lord. No calamity for us. Religious television is filled with these sorts of so-called prophetic voices. People who say what you want to hear as long as you send them some money. You send money and God will give you health and wealth. No calamity. I just wonder if some of you might have even watched them this morning before you came here. Be careful whom you listen to. The judgment for those kind of leaders, the kind that lead people astray, is that God will be silent. He won't give them anything else to say. Micah portrays himself as the exact opposite of that kind of leader in this sort of little ray of light in this otherwise dark chapter 3. It's in verse 8. Look at that with me. On the other hand, so you see there's going to be a contrast here, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. This is the true prophet, the true preacher. And any power he has comes not from himself, it comes from the Spirit of the Lord. And he preaches not a feel-good therapeutic message that tickles the ears, but an honest message that includes a message and a warning against sin. J.C. Ryle wrote this way back in the 1800s. He He writes, I ask what you think of the faithful minister of Christ who honestly exposes sin and pricks your conscience. Mind how you answer that question. Too many nowadays, he says, like only those ministers who prophesy smooth things and let their sins alone, who flatter pride and amuse their intellectual taste, but who never sound an alarm and never tell them of the wrath to come. Friends, surround yourself with prophets, preachers, with leaders, with friends like Micah here, who aren't afraid of their reputation and who will declare sin, even though they might not get food anymore. God's warnings should paint a very clear picture for all of us about the seriousness of sin. This is not something that God just shrugs his shoulders at. You might be here today and would maybe not call yourself a Christian. You might even... Admit, some of you, when it comes right down to it, you know you're a sinner. But I wonder if you see your sins as a, as a personal offense against the holy God. Do you recognize the, the seriousness of your sin, that it alienates you from God, it separates you from him? Friend, there is a way. There's, there's only one way to God. And we'll get to that in a minute. If you are a Christian, and you need a reminder of how much God detests sin, then I just ask you to look back at the cross. Look at what God did in order to deal with sin. Look at the severity of the punishment that he laid on his own son. Sin is severe. Sin is serious. Sin requires a response. If if you're part of this church, you need to hear this warning. Warnings like this come along every once in a while, but we just kind of sometimes pass them on as if they don't apply to us. And there are two reasons I say that from our text. One is that these warnings are for the chosen people of God, for Israel. And so they've got to be 
for us as well. But the second thing that makes me want to warn us all is the fact that these people were so self-assured, so seemingly secure, so totally satisfied that they were doing okay, even to the point that they got prideful and arrogant about it. God is in the midst of us, they said, so we can do whatever we want. I fear we can sometimes be like that. After all, you know, we live in the Bible Belt of Canada. We are Albertans. Yet God breaks into that smugness. He comes crashing in to theirs and to our self-assured lives and says, hear now what the Lord is saying. I'm talking to you. Yes, you. Listen, friend. What is it that gives you security? Is it the fact that you've attended church all your life? Does that make you immune in your opinion? Is it the fact that you were maybe born in a Christian home? Is, is it the fact that you're involved in ministry, that you're doing good things in the community? Don't presume upon God's grace that way. Don't boast in your own efforts or in your own, you know, in your own noble birth. Put your faith in Christ alone. And then boast in him as the only one that can save you. Not all these things that you've been doing all your life. The right way to approach God is right here in Micah. Just go over to chapter 7. This is great stuff. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will Hear me. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out into the light and I will see his righteousness. Here's someone who gets it. Someone who understands who he is. Someone who understands who God is. Someone who understands the seriousness of his sin. Someone who understands that his sin exacts the discipline of God. He's not arrogant, but he is confident. My God will hear me. You can see the, the opposite of the, of the people to whom God says, you won't hear me, I'm not going to speak to you. Don't cry out to me anymore. Here, this man says, my God will hear me. He's also aware, though, of the severity of his sin in the presence of God. I will bear, I'll take it, the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. I deserve it. He knows he's a sinner, but he also knows God's promise. And so he's confident that God will rescue him. But how will he rescue him? How will God execute justice? And that brings us to our other point today. To not listen is to incite the peril of divine judgment, but to listen is to invite the protection of divine pardon. Even though all three sections in Micah are severe in their pronouncements of judgment, every section also includes this sort of sweet sound of salvation. It points to the hope for God's people. And that's where I want to end. I don't want to just beat you down with a stick and, and, and call you all sinners and say you're all doomed. There's always a voice of hope in these prophets. A sweet sound of salvation. It points to hope for God's people. The book of Micah was written as a warning, and these warnings would all come to fruition. Yes, Israel did not listen, and God used foreign nations, Assyria and Babylon, to rip them out of the promised land. But Micah was also written to give God's people hope. 
In chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, even though everyone else would be scattered, he says, I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I'm going to do the opposite to this remnant. I will put them together like sheep in the fold. Whenever you think of sheep, you have to think of protection, safety, a shepherd that comes to protect his flock. These themes of a remnant and of sheep show up in other places. And, and then in chapter 4, verse 10, there's talk of rescue and redemption. And so Micah here is looking past the inevitable judgment that's about to happen to a future mercy and grace and kindness of God that he gives out through someone else. And God promises that for those who wait, for those who listen, God will not be silent. God will hear them. God will bring them out to light. They will see his righteousness. And this hope comes from the most unexpected place. Go back to chapter 5, verse 2. As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be the ruler of Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. And then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. From Bethlehem, from this insignificant little town, would go forth for me, a ruler in Israel. All these words are so packed with meaning. We spend lots of time on each one of them. The fact that Bethlehem is named points to the fact that the Messiah, being in the line of David, would also come from Bethlehem. But I think it's a lot more than that. I think the real point of Bethlehem is its smallness. The fact that a ruler would come from such an obscure place. But listen, this is the way God always works. And he does that for a reason. He does that to to emphasize the fact that salvation is all of him. He's not impressed with bigness or popularity. He doesn't do anything that would attract attention to man's accomplishments in any way. He wants to draw attention to his accomplishments and bringing about salvation. He wants us to boast not in our own ingenuity, but all in his work. We could go through the entire Bible for examples. You know, he picks Israel, the fewest of all peoples, to be his chosen people. He picks David, the youngest of Jesse's sons, to be the king from which the Messiah would come. Even here in Micah, chapter 4, verse 7, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation. He makes the weak strong. He uses a little town from which the Messiah would come. And so he works in unexpected ways so that he gets the glory. 1 Corinthians 1, 27-31 says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, oh yes, we ought to boast. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We're about to celebrate Christmas, and this passage in Micah points directly to Bethlehem and to our Savior, to the one who can save us from this pervasive, hopeless position in which we find ourselves. 
One, piper has seen, one writer has seen how all these, now you know who it is, has, has seen how all these events in Bethlehem point to the fact that this could only be of God. He says, God chose a stable so no innkeeper could boast that the Messiah was born in my hotel. He chose a manger so that no woodmaker could boast. It was my craftsmanship. He chose Bethlehem so no one could say it was because my city was so great that God chose to have the Messiah born here. Well, it's in the same way that God chose you and me freely in his own grace and mercy while we were yet sinners so that we would have nothing to brag about. That's the point of Bethlehem, a small town that would be the birthplace of a great Savior to save us from our great sins. What will this Savior from Bethlehem do? Verse 4, he will arise and shepherd his flock. There's that protection again. In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord. This one will be our peace. Notice that he will not shepherd everyone, but he will shepherd his flock. In John 10, Jesus is talking to yet another generation of Jewish leaders, and he says, You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. They hear my voice. He will shepherd those who hear his voice. Well, how do you listen? You listen by repenting of your sins and by putting your trust in the Messiah. And then later in John 10, he says, And I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's again that same sound of safety and security. Well, what else happens when you listen to the voice of the shepherd? Verse 5, he will be our peace. The greatest problem for Israel in Micah was not not the Assyrians or the Babylonians. It was their sin. Remember when we said before how at the very basic level, sin separates us from God. Well, that's what has us in this hopeless condition. The only wages of sin is death. While here, the only fix is the only fix, the only remedy for that problem. The fix is found in this one from Bethlehem, this one who will be their peace. Our unbelief needs to be removed somehow. The fact that we consistently break God's law must be dealt with. Ultimately, God's wrath must be removed. All those things separate us and alienate sinners from God. They put us at enmity with God, which basically means they put us at unpeace with God. But the good news is that there is one who comes to bring peace. There is one who is our peace, and that one is Christ. God, in his great love, sent his sinless son to die on the cross to take the punishment for our sins. How does he come to be your peace? Well, the first way is by acknowledging your sins. We could have done an overview of Micah by just kind of, you know, skipping most of it, but just looking at the good parts. But it's only when we understand the depth and the hopelessness and the pervasiveness of our sin that we start to understand God's love, God's grace, and the pervasiveness of that love and that grace. It's only when we become aware of our sin and aware of the punishment that we deserve for our sin it's only when we trust in the fact that God punished our sin by having his sinless son take the penalty for us it's only when we do that that we start to get astounded by God's kindness you ignore God at your peril you believe God for your eternal safety Well, Micah ends, and I want to end, by showing us the beauty and the wonder of who God is and what he has done. 
Why don't you read it with me? Turn to Micah 7, verse 18, the last three verses of Micah. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the day of old. Charles Feinberg, he tells how Orthodox Jews have this little ritual on the Day of Atonement every year where they go down to a river and they empty their their pockets into the river while they recite these verses that I just read. It's supposed to symbolize the, the casting of their sins into the sea. But for us, we know that the only way our sins can be dealt with, the only way God's anger for sin is satisfied is through the work of Christ on the cross. He's the one that empties our sins. So the lesson for Micah, for some of you, is that you might recognize your only hope lies in the person of the Savior from Bethlehem, that you would listen to God's voice of warning, that you would find peace with God through the one that is our peace. If you want to know how to do that, if you want to talk more about that, please come and talk to me at the end. For others of you, my hope is that you have recognized, maybe for the first time, the false security of your smugness and your self-assurance and your reliance on being churchy. What does God require of you? That you listen to God's voice. And as we read from Micah 6, 8, that you do justice, that you love mercy, that you walk humbly with God. You look at that and go, I can't do that. Well, yes, you can. The only way you can do that is through Christ. As he transforms your life, as he gives you a new mind and a new heart to follow him. Will you hear now what God is saying? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you, thank you that you speak. Oh, how helpless we would be if you were silent. Lord, we want you to continue to speak to us. We want you to warn us about our sins. We want your spirit to bring conviction when that's needed. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to listen. Help us to filter out the world and to listen to your voice. Lord, we thank you for the promise of salvation. We thank you for the fulfillment of your promise in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, whom we are going to celebrate this next month. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and for your grace. We thank you for your love, your amazing love. Lord, we know we don't deserve it. Oh, who is a God like our God? Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. Lord, thank you for doing all that for us out of your kindness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.